welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Legally Brief. Today, I have a conversation with Elise Burkhart, who is the owner of Fleur Elise BKLN, a wonderfully creative space where Elise uses the power of flowers and art to bring together different communities. During this conversation, you'll not only hear about Elise's current venture as a artist, as a florist, we'll also speak directly to the roles that she held, leadership roles in the nonprofit world as the president and CEO of the Foundation for Jewish Culture, the Brooklyn Youth Course, and the Jerusalem International Fellows. Elise is going to tell us how nonprofit leadership can address systemic failures, implement true diversity, equity, and inclusion, and be a change agent within the nonprofit world to better serve their communities. I know that you're going to enjoy this conversation that I have with Elise Burkhart, the owner of Fleur Elise BKLN. Part of the fun that I have with doing these podcast recordings is when I can find a guest that can speak to not only their background, but can offer listeners another perspective on what I am always trying to turn over in my mind, being a hopelessly curious person that I am, and looking at our structures, looking at our institutions. And like I was saying, when I could find a guest that themselves is a change maker or is a disruptor for our traditional institutions. And that is what I'm bringing you today with my guest, Elise Bernhardt. Elise, very briefly, and Elise, you're going to tell the audience more about yourself because we all know that intros can be, can drone on and it becomes alive when the person talks about their own background. But just very briefly, Elise Bernhardt is the owner of Fleur Elise BKLN. That is a wonderful creation. I don't even know if it deserves the name business because I think it's so much more than a business. <laughs> it's debatable. What kind of a business? You know, it's, it's, and I really want you to talk about this, but Elise has used her flowers and thus the name Fleur has used flowers to do something that is so creative and so change-worthy to go into institutions, to go into the workplace and different teams and these structures, and to rethink and reimagine how workplaces, employees, and teams can relate and better use each other. So that's all I'm going to say. Elise, can you tell the listeners, first even start, go back and tell us a little bit about your work history and how you even found yourself in more traditional settings and then leading up and how you literally blossomed into this kind of a way that we can interact differently in our workplaces. 
So I'll give it to you, Elise. Thank you, Judy. First of all, I love the idea of being hopelessly curious. <laughs> I would say that a big part of my career and even now as a teacher of floral design is about inspiring people to be more curious. I think it's the first way that we start to really encounter what's around us. And, and you know, that often leads to seeing the underbelly of what's going on. And that's usually what makes us want to change things. So I started as a dancer choreographer back in the day. And I wanted to make a dance on the Brooklyn Bridge. And I had to get all kinds of permits and so forth and so on. And I wanted it to be free. And I wanted people to see modern dance, like not just the same 10 people in the dark theater. I wanted it I thought if it, if I could get it, when I grew up on Long Island, I had no you know special arts training, and I fell in love with this art form. And I thought if I can fall in love with it, so can other people. But maybe they need to see it in a different way, in a different context, and not feel feel like that it was scary or uh, intimidating. And so I started this organization, Dancing in the Streets, and we produced performances in all kinds of crazy places. Orchard Beach, the Bradbury Building in Los Angeles, Grand Central Terminal, and we brought really fabulous Coney Island. Coney Island Boardwalk was like one of the most special because we bring really avant-garde artists into places they hadn't been and audiences hadn't seen anything like this. And the results were always incredible. People stayed, people were quiet, people were interested. And I know it's changed the careers of many of the artists I encountered. And I think it it created audiences that never would have even considered approaching this kind of work. I then went on to run an organization called The Kitchen, which was kind of the home for the avant-garde people like Laurie Anderson and Philip Glass and sort of a the movers and shakers and change makers of contemporary art and performance. And no one went to this place anymore. It had like, it was on its last legs. And I said, well, you know, how do we get children into this building? How do we get families into this building? There's gotta be, I used to call us the anti Disney. <laughs> there were people who had children who didn't want to just give their kids the usual kind of commercial fare. You know, children are endlessly curious and open in a way that uh, not everybody is. And to give them an experience of uh, seeing artists really working in an experimental way, you know, trying new things, to me, that's like a, a really important formative experience. And I guess I should back up just to say that when I was at Dancing in the Streets, we started some really important educational programs in the schools because we realize that it's all well and good to bring, you know, weird performing arts and experimental artists and people might think, oh, wow, that's really cool. But they would probably be way more interested if they understood a little more about whatever it was. And they got to know the artists because knowing people directly changes your approach to whatever it is that, you know, if your friend writes weird poetry, they're your friend. And so you might take the time to kind of get under the hood of it, even though poetry might in general put you off. So I think this kind of giving people a chance to, to know creators and also to have a chance to create themselves was a very important part of what I tried to promulgate in the arts world that I worked in for so long. I ran some other organizations and I sort of became executive by accident. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't like sign up for that. But, you know, one of the great things about having the platform of being an executive is you can start to set the boat in the right direction. And in doing that, I had to learn about how to work with a team. And I tend to be a very direct person. And I was used to working with people who were very self-motivated. And as I started running larger organizations, you know, it wasn't always so easy. And um, there was an organizational development coach who came in and said to me, you know, you have this style. You have a direct style, but, you know, not everybody does. And your job 
as the executive is to adapt to other people's styles. And I thought, wow, really? I never considered that. And I think that began my understanding as a, a person who led teams to really start thinking about how does each person contribute differently? What do you need to do to bring people together that doesn't feel false? You know, what's, what's sort of an authentic way to give people a chance to get to know each other? So fast forward, I was up for another executive director job and I woke up and I realized I, I kind of knew all the questions and I sadly thought I had most of the answers and it just wasn't something I wanted to keep doing. And I started this floral design business because I'd been walking through the flower district for eight years towards one of my jobs. And um, I'd fallen in love with flowers and taken some classes. And uh, we went to Japan and I took an Ikebana class, which is Japanese floral design, a very spiritual practice. And that kind of rocked my world. And about six months later, I started Fleurelise. And about six months after that, I taught a class in floral design, and it was to 10 people who hardly knew each other, like hadn't seen each other in many years. And at the end of the class, we were all kind of best friends and knew things about each other we wouldn't have known, except we were doing this creative enterprise. So I sort of said, wow, this is kind of the marriage of my old career and my new career. It's like, how do you bring people together? in a way that's calm. I always say the three C's, calm, creative, and collaborative. And flowers are a really good medium for that. We mostly know flowers. It's not something that's strange to us. And flowers lower your blood pressure. And in Japan, flower arrangement is a life skill. I've heard that children learn to do flower arranging before they learn to read. And so I feel like this is a life skill. You know, when I'm doing this, I'm feeling like I'm giving people the tools to make something beautiful for themselves and for their families or their office mates forever. You don't need to spend a lot of money. And so that's really how I've, I've come around to doing this. Some of my favorite, favorite teaching, teaching experiences, there's a home for formerly incarcerated women in the Bronx. I'm going to forget the name. It's called Ladies of Hope Ministries. And I kind of invited myself. I said, you know, if you're interested, I'd love to do a workshop for the women there. And they said, sure. And I showed up with a bunch of flowers. It was the week before Thanksgiving. And these were women who had really, really had some, you know, they had lives that I couldn't even imagine. And here they were together, like putting their lives back together and getting to know each other as housemates. We just had the best time. We just had the best time. And, you know, it's all in the conversations that happen while you're using your hands to make something. I always say, I know I've been successful when no two arrangements are the same because everybody brings their own preferences and ideas about what they like to put together. But at the end, we had, you know, eight beautiful bouquets, plus a really special one uh, that they all created together for their Thanksgiving table. And I left feeling like this is, you know, this, it seems like such a simple thing. You know, it's not like life changing on a big scale, but it's something you can do on a regular basis, a kind of practice that gives you a minute to consider nature, to have some breathing time. And when you're doing it with other people to get to see talents that you wouldn't have known that they had. All right. That was really long. That was not long. That was perfect. Because in your giving this great intro, Elise, you've done two things. You have just given context and language to something that I have been doing on and off for several years. But in Ernst recently, I've been purchasing small bouquets. So what I did was maybe about two years ago, I purchased just five round little bouquets, not much bigger than say, um, I don't know, maybe three or four inches high. And I would, I put them in the bathrooms. I put them in every room in my two son's rooms. And anytime I would go to the store at the checkout, I would just pick out a bouquet. It could be $2, $3, or it could just be greenery. And I have just been snipping it. So as I put the groceries away, 
And I would put these little greeneries or small roses or binoculars or hydrangea about the house. And I just, what you just said about bringing down blood pressure, I didn't know that. But all I knew is that it calmed me. It made mornings not seem so harsh. So thank you for that. And you just now, I guess you have medically proven that my spending that extra two or three dollars is well worth it for everyone in the house well-being. So thank you for that. You know, like I don't always talk about, you know, I talk about flowers and team building, but it's a really it's a wellness thing. It really is. It really is. True. And I'm glad you're doing it. And so maybe we should give that give that context. So at least I'm going to give this disclaimer for the rest of our conversation. It will be there will be an overabundance of um, puns on seeds and flowers <laughs> and greenery. So just listeners, I'm sorry for that in advance. When you talk about starting growing up in Long Island and now thinking about ways to bring dance to unique and unusual places, that to me says with so many other individuals that I've interviewed, specifically change agents like yourself, quite literally, the seed was planted in you beforehand. Because how do you go from, and I'm making this assumption, a more suburban background or childhood in Long Island to wanting to quite literally dance in some of the most unique spaces and bring it out into the open? How how did you even formulate that? So when I was a kid, I played violin and I was apparently pretty good. And then I became a teenager and I disappointed my mother and gave it up for folk dancing, which like I think used my energy really well. And I really fell in love with that. And I went to the 92nd Street Y and a man there who was kind of in charge of the program said, well, if you, you know, I said, I really am interested in this choreography stuff. So he said, well, if you want to learn choreography, you have to go to Sarah Lawrence and study with Bessie Schoenberg. I won't go into the long story, but Bessie Schoenberg was sort of the doyenne of contemporary choreography. And anybody who is anybody who made dance in, you know, the 70s and 80s had studied with her. And she's an extraordinary woman. And literally, she sits on my shoulder still 25 years after she's gone. Um she had an approach to making things, which was not about, here's how you do it. Here's what you need to see. And, you know, she would sit us all down and she'd give us some, you know, like, I want you to get across the floor on a diagonal any way you want, two different levels. And then we would talk about what we saw. We would observe. We would give feedback to the person and not say, this is what I would do, but when you do X, Y, Z, this is what I see. So you're giving a person feedback in a way that's constructive and also enables them to see from a different perspective. Okay, so plant that over there. When I was in college, they send me to see all kinds of dance things and I would like scratch my head. I just didn't get it. It was Merce Cunningham who's like extremely abstract. And now I think so beautiful. But back then I was like, I really don't get the big deal here. Like, what is, what's like, what's the big fuss? Anyway, so I'd seen him in the theaters. And then I had the occasion of seeing it, his work outdoors. And it was like a light bulb went on. And I was like, oh my God, wow, this is incredible. And that was kind of the aha moment of like, if you took something out of its kind of normal context and put it in a different context, you just had a very different experience of it. So like making dances outside changed the whole impact of how you receive them. And I was always interested in architecture and, you know, certain places would really inspire me and I would imagine what you could do there. And at first I was trying to do it. and then. I think it's important to realize that I was asking other people to join me, you know, other dancers and choreographers. And then I realized I couldn't do both. Then I realized actually I was a much better producer than I was a choreographer. Like, you know, you somehow sometimes discover your talents when you're in the middle of struggling with some things. And I realized, you know, you're really good at this. You're really not so good at that. I mean, you're okay, but you know, 
support other people's work because, you know, you've really got that. So that's what I started doing. And I have to say that I think it was the feedback from people in the audience that told me that this was the right way to go because we were not getting the same. I mean, so back in those days, audiences were very white and they were very, you know, like the friends of the dancers. And I thought, wait a minute. There is a big community. I'm in New York City. There's all kinds of people. There's also all kinds of dance companies. Let's mix this up. So we were getting really, really incredibly diverse audiences, blacks, browns, yellows, white, children, middle-aged, seniors. And sometimes you'd look around. I would look at the audience more than I would look at the performances and say, okay, we've got this. We're figuring this out. And sometimes there were some disasters because we misread uh, the community or we didn't spend enough time in the community. And there were some amazingly important lessons learned there because, you know, you always learn the most from the things you want to put your head under the sand about. And really, that's sort of how I came to understanding that the education piece was so critical to the success of an overarching idea of in this case, dance, but any art form, finding a place in many different worlds. You know, you needed to know about, you do need to know about your the community you are coming into, and you need to be humble, and you need to know who the leaders are, and you need to build their trust in order to bring in this new thing, which you think everyone wants to know about, but maybe they don't. So how is it useful to them? And how do you support their agenda? Those were the kind of aha moments that came from doing this over a long period of time. And then it just became, this is what we need to do in every case. We can't just sit on our laurels of, oh, you know, we filled the house. Yeah. Who do you fill the house with? Who was in that audience, right? Like, how do you build audiences for unusual things because they have meaning? Actually, I will tell you, that one of my best theater experiences, because I did run a theater for a while, when I was running Dancing in the Streets, this organization that mostly produced site-specific work, we did a, a festival of percussive music and dance. And part of it was a night of tap at the Apollo. And I talked to lots of experts in tap, and I put together this amazing roster. There was Gregory Hines, there was Honey Coles, there was the young Savion Glover. I mean, he was 16 at the time. And his mom was his agent, Yvette. And we said, we would like Savion to create a piece for kids in middle school in these two Harlem schools, which he did. That's amazing. And we filled the Apollo because parents came to see their kids. I mean, yeah, there were lots of tap fans who wanted to see Honey Coles, who, you know, was 80, or Gregory Hines, may he rest in peace, you know, who was a big deal. And there were lots of other groups. But parents came to see their kids on the stage of the Apollo. And that was the great success. You brought out some point and what I really say are patterns in the question that I mentioned at the top of our conversation about how to rethink, how to reimagine, I'm constantly asking, as part of this curiosity, how can we make traditional institutions, traditional notions, those corners of our culture that are so embedded that it seems to be that they're stuck and they're normalized, they're, they're normalizing ways and things and patterns that hurt. You said that you began to think and reimagine and ways that dance could serve more individuals. You were stating that at first mm-hmm. when the audience members included either wealthy, mostly white audience or white audiences, friends of the dancers. And then you thought, well, maybe we could serve a greater audience and expose and delight other individuals in other communities. So you thought about the communities. So it seems to me if a listener is out there and if they're in any position of influence, authority, maybe they're a manager, a director, maybe they lead some type of 
workplace or some type of institution, maybe there's a judge or attorney listening to this. And if they're in that position, it would seem to me then at least that the the genesis of changing our institutions begins with one person reimagining what it could look like. And then asking, secondly, the second step is, where are the more diverse audiences? The third step is to take that leap and bring in more diversity, being more inclusive, realizing, as you said, you'll make missteps and mistakes along the way because maybe you didn't spend enough time educating. So it would seem to me that you just gave a blueprint from your experience on how a individual who presents as white, how they can be more inclusive, which is what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I wanted to share with you and share with our listeners why you're so perfect to speak to the what's going on in the nonprofit world and what you, in your experience, of course, what you may have experienced as a leader of nonprofits. Here's what we know. So nonprofits are leased. They are the third largest employer. So when we think about nonprofits, a lot of time people think, oh, nonprofits, they're these feel-good organizations. They're not really companies. They're not really. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And I am deeming you here. I, I, you know, we go through when we're in court. If I was in court and I was trying to have you deemed an expert, I would go through your background, some of your writings or, or what have you. And then I would ask the court to deem you an expert. I'm fast forwarding some of those questions. And for purposes of this conversation, at least you are now deemed my expert in nonprofits. <laughs> but <Okay>. before, <laughs> before I get to a question, I, I want to share with our listeners a little bit of a background. And let's just focus in on not even New York. I didn't get the numbers for New York City. And these numbers that I'm going to give maybe even are small in comparison to New York. But let's look at Washington, D.C. alone, a place that I call home. I was there before I moved to Alabama, but that's a whole different episode. But in Washington, D.C. alone, we have over 50,000 nonprofits that employ over 600,000 employees. In Washington, D.C. area alone, one in four employees work for a nonprofit. Within that population, um, Elise, it is dominated by white board members, white Mm-hmm. leaderships. And they serve a community that's mostly can be labeled as poor, minority, historically marginalized. That's their community. And there has always been this tension in how are individuals that are so boards and nonprofits that are so lacking in diversity, how are they really, really understanding the needs? You said it yourself that when you started to think more expansively and inclusively, inclusively, that there were mistakes, but you were determined to be inclusive. In At least in 2020, we know that our nation was stirred and pricked by the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. We know it goes back, but there was, to me anyway, there was a renewed awakening around those murders. And in 2020, there were two lawsuits filed by African-American women within the nonprofit. They were in leadership roles. And these lawsuits were filed against the Meyer Foundation. They were based on racial discrimination. The Meyer Foundation is a huge, wealthy foundation established by the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. Well, Elise, here's the question that I'm posing to you, and I want you to answer with your experience and how you used your mindset and your determination to change, people think, as I was saying before, that when they hear the word nonprofit, myself included, when I hear the word nonprofit, uh, I really don't think big corporation, corporate culture. We really don't think that, we actually think nonprofits, by their very nature, their mission, their vision to help the poor, help the marginalized, we think it goes without saying, well, I'm sure that their boards and their leaderships are diverse. At least, what is your experience? So when I first started, you know, back in the day when I was 20-something, starting an organization, 
I started with the people I knew. Now, my roommate is from college, who actually also lives in the Washington, D.C. area, is one of my closest friends. But to be fair, I didn't have a lot of friends of color. And I chose people who might have a little bit of money to help me because, you know, when you start a nonprofit, you generally, I was waitressing, but you know what I mean? It's like, you have to have like a little gas in the engine. I have a friend who's I'm, I'm on the board of who runs an organization in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And it's basically all about helping to serve young people who haven't made it through high school and try and get them on a career path through the arts. For a long time, this organization had an all-white board. Then it had one person of color, and it was the founder said, you know, I know this isn't right, but how, how am I going to break this pattern? And in the last couple of years, this person of color brought on two more people of color, and now we finally are at a place where actually now this the board is eight people and there's four people of color and four people are white or you know it's it's like it's shifted it's been a very deliberate very methodical very thoughtful way to go forward but it happened because there was a person of color on the board who said i know these people and i think because i'm on this board they will join me which brings me to the point that I meant to say, which is the mistakes that I made all had to do with who are you allying yourself with? Who are you collaborating with? Whose advice are you taking? You know, if you go keep going back to the same well, you're going to keep getting the same water. So I think on a large scale, for instance, just to go from, you know, like one person starting their own foundation or nonprofit to like really like let, let's look at the Ford Foundation. I mean, the Ford Foundation was a mighty white place that purported to do lots of good for lots of disadvantaged people throughout the world. When they brought on Darren Walker, that's when things changed. I mean, he's an extraordinary leader. He's a black man and he's a gay person and he brought all of who he is to say, okay, if we're going to make change, we need to bring in the people who understand the problems we're trying to solve from a very firsthand basis. And then there's sort of, how do we say, everything in the middle. You know, there are so many, I am fortunate to have been part of an executive director roundtable, and I was the only arts person in the room. The rest were social service, and they were all women. It was an all-women's roundtable. And I could go on and on about the things that women leaders have to put up with, which is different from what male leaders. That's like a whole nother podcast, you know. Yeah, we'll have that conversation, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And in fact, when I ran a small foundation, the community around me was all men. I was like one of room of 15 execs. I was one woman amongst 14 men. So there's also that crazy business of not putting women in positions of power. I feel like over the last few years, that's shifted a lot amongst the foundation people I know. There is, uh, I mean, really since George Floyd, but I think it was going on, at least in the cultural foundation world, that we really need more people of color I think even the New York State Council on the Arts would say that you needed to show diversity on your boards of directors. I think there's more mandate now for diversity. And unfortunately, you know, that's sometimes how things change. You know, money talks. Right. You know, if the people who are giving out the money said, you know, this is one of our criteria. If you're not there, show us how you're trying to be there. Because those changes, those cultural changes really do happen on a person-to-person level. Is one of the problems, Elise, the slow or maybe, I'm going to go as far to say a resistance to change, does it really embedded in a less malicious intent on the part of historical nonprofit leaderships? And it's really just more so of an incumbent bias so meaning we've always done things like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're asking about systemic bias. Right. Yeah. So here's what I would say. When I think about the 
eight white women who ran nonprofit organizations. None of them, except me, had children. All of them, just about all of them, had master's degrees. There was certainly a level of privilege. You know, in order to either start running a nonprofit, unless you're a crazy person and you just waitress and, you know, (laughs) whatever you do. So, you know, because there are a lot of people who will just, if you'll excuse the expression, they will bootstrap it. Uh, And I know lots of them, you know, who aren't, aren't wealthy and haven't managed to, you know, they are just doing it by the skin of their teeth. And lots of artists of all colors and races and genders. And that has to do with the needing to do that. But when you get into the the more substantial traditional organizations, which is what you're asking me about, if they've been around for 50 years, they started with all white boards, mostly male. And that was just how it was. Nobody even thought to question it. And so the questions have started trickling down. I think there, I remember many discussions and efforts about how to change things without people necessarily knowing. Because if you start out with a mostly white structure, even if you have the best of intentions, you have to think about how are you going to change that in a meaningful, authentic way? How do you bring people onto your board, not as tokens? Right. Like, that's a really important piece of this. I kind of remember when we were looking for board members of color and, and, you know, we would kind of go through the lists of, well, let's see who's on the board of the studio museum. Who's on the board of the show. You know, like you, the same way people would cherry pick, I don't know, rich people on the, I mean, you know, you collect these, (laughs) sorry to be so. You're not, you're not granular. But, you know, we used to take our benefit invitations that we'd gotten from all these fancy places and you'd circle names and you'd go, who do you know who knows that, you know, what's the six degrees of separation? So you had to start thinking about it differently. You had to start making different circles. You had to think about who knew that person and how did you get to that person? And, you know, God knows there's a lot. Many, many, many accomplished people of color in the corporate world. You had to start looking for them. And you had to convince them that you weren't just bringing them on because you needed a person of color on your board, that, you know, you had to make a case for why their experience and their, their interests aligned with your mission. So it's a different approach. And it, it needed to, I mean, I'm speaking as a white woman, right? You needed to be really thoughtful about how you would do that. And you had to figure out how you were going to make, get introduced in a way that, you know, put you on the right footing. Thinking back in your experience and not only your work experience, but in how you've engaged and worked with other boards, do you think nonprofit executives today, nonprofit boards in your experience are ready for diverse voices. And when I say diverse voices, I not only mean racially diverse, I mean gay, lesbian, transgender, individuals of different abilities. So maybe you are in a wheelchair and you're offering, you know, there are so many nonprofits that are speak out for not only donate and provide grants to individuals of different physical capabilities. Do you think they're ready to really hear what individuals are different? Right. Right. Physical ability, maybe even individuals that are, have overcome and are managing mental health. So your bipolar, that's also a part of being diverse. Do you think in your opinion, the boards that you've interacted with, worked with, or worked on, that they're really ready for that voice and that disruption? Because I have been in, I've served on boards, I'm serving on Boards And I often think when I listen to the conversations, I'm calling one to mind right now, where I was sitting in the room and I knew I, I began to give my opinion and you tell the energy shifted. They were not ready for that level of honesty. What's your opinion about our boards, our executives, our nonprofits? Are they ready for the level of honesty that diversity brings. 
I think, well, first of all, we can't lump all nonprofits together. Okay. That's A, because there are so many different kinds. And of course, I am primarily coming from a cultural perspective and, you know, and really from even more niche kind of, um, what would I call it? Kind of experimental arts perspective. So from that little slice, I could say, my colleagues are falling over themselves to try and diversify their boards and get every possible point of view in the room. And I have to say sometimes, and I don't mean this the wrong way, but sometimes to their peril, because sometimes they will get stuck and not move forward at all because they're trying to make room for all these different perspectives. And sometimes it can be paralyzing. That's interesting. You know, because in a certain way, in order to be not just accommodating, but including everybody, you have to find a way for everyone to not only feel comfortable, but be able to speak. And in order to do that, you have to really recede, if you know what I mean. Like as a leader, you have to really step back, 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 back. And I think there's, and I say this as an executive, and you know, at, at a certain point in order for the car to move forward, you have to pick a direction and not everybody's going to be happy with that. And so in the absolutely important desire to diversify as much as you can, you may not be able to actually move in any particular direction because everybody's got an agenda. Right. Okay. Um, right. Now that's on a really, like I'm, I'm kind of on a not quite molecular scale there. I think when you get to bigger institutions, you know, million, I don't know, I'm just trying to think, you know, 5 million plus to 5 million to 80 million. I don't know. I have a friend who runs Helen Keller International and she deals with people in 24 countries, Asia, Africa, South America. And, and, you know, there's so many cultural differences and she has leaders of all backgrounds and colors and can't say abilities because disabilities is really coming into its own as a, I mean, I know this from people in the dance world working with dancers with disabilities. It's, it seems to be really coming into its own as constituency that deserves to be heard. I mean, I would just say in larger, more established organizations, I think it's uphill battle. I haven't been in all those rooms. I've been in a few rooms where, you know, the higher the money runs, the more board members are beholden. You know, $10 million donor gets heard. doesn't matter what actually happens in the boardroom, but, you know, in the office, they are the ones who really set the agenda. And, you know, I'm sorry if somebody tells me that's not really the truth, but that's how I've seen it. People get quiet because they don't want to rock the financial boat. Executive directors, should those individuals who are seeking to change the face, the mission, not necessarily the mission, but to the way a mission for a nonprofit is carried out and they are getting resistance from hmm. maybe board members, maybe staff members, should they then ensure or speak with donors telling the donors, hey, you all can really be instrumental on diversifying our board. So, oh, absolutely. Okay, so should we be pulling it? If there is a executive director out there for a board that is currently encountering resistance in implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion in their nonprofit, should they be reimagining and thinking, hey, I should pull out the tool of speaking directly to my donors and getting my donors to align. Yes. Okay. And and that's not a hard job right now. I would say the foundation world, as in the giving foundation world, uh, at least the circles that I've traveled, are falling all over themselves to fund diversity and inclusion efforts, to support organizations who are bringing on new staff. In fact, you know, if you just kind of look at uh, either you know LinkedIn or Idealist. There's all these new jobs that have to do with diversity and inclusion in for-profit and non-profit arenas. It's become a really 
key piece of what they expect to get done. So I, for sure, going to donors at this moment for somebody who's encountering resistance. So when I was running the kitchen, which was the performance space, and I really wanted to change things a lot. I mean, this was a very insular organization, and I was trying to make it open to the public and do programs with the public housing complexes down the block that nobody had ever talked to. And I'd say there were a lot of people on my board who were like, what is she talking about? That's not the people we're interested in. But when I went to foundation funders who were really interested in how do we diversify our audience, there was like, yeah, here's some money. At which point my board members had to like back down, right? Because unless they were going to pay more money, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like money talks. Exactly. Exactly. So that that it sounds like in this blueprint that you're leaving for us during this conversation, that is definitely a tool that nonprofit leaders can use. Oh, for sure. It's the biggest tool. Yeah. Yeah. It is the biggest tool is, you know, one of the jobs of an executive director is to make sure that you maintain a budget that is in the black or in the green, I like to say. And that's never easy. And I think the people who keep their organizations alive and afloat, like their first job is about having really good relationships with their donors and their board and their staff. I mean, you know, it's a dance between those three things because it's all well and good to get a foundation to give you money. But if your staff has no clue what it is you're really trying to do, they're like, you're just making us do more work. Everybody's got to be brought in. I think that in a certain way, that's the job of a leader, articulate your vision, and then get, you know, I hate to use that word, get your stakeholders, your your immediate, your donors, your board, your staff, make sure they're all on the same boat. And if your, your vision is about diversity, you need to really spell that out. What does that mean? How do we do it? Who's involved? Well, everybody's involved. And help them figure out what their part is in that, in that effort. You know, one of my questions that I usually round out an episode with is actionable steps, really a takeaway or summary of what we talked about. And you are one of those rare guests that I don't even have to pose it because you just said, you know, over the course of this conversation, the blueprint for us to rethink this huge employer, uh, nonprofits, an institution in and of itself, it started with you, it sounds like. It started with you rethinking that seed that was that was planted initially where you're there, you're dancing, and you're thinking, how can I expand this community? So it started with, one, being curious, two, reimagining a more diverse community that could enjoy and benefit from the service. And then you said that, three, it sounds like the third kind of milestone path, however, whatever analogy you want to use, you know what I and I gave the disclaimer at least and I'm not even using my plant and growing analogy. So you planted <laughs> you started to nurture it with curiosity and reimagining. I guess we had our, our first root or blooming, and you know, I should know planting better. My father was a, a master, our gardener, really of his own right. But you just talked about have being setting a true vision so that you don't get stuck in your imagining of what diversity and equity and inclusion looks like within your specific nonprofit. And that takes the alignment. So I guess to have a true vision or a plant grow, you need the alignment of water, rich soil, and also the caring. So that- And sun. Sun. I forgot. Sun. I was going to say that actually. I think you absolutely nailed it. And I just want to say that I talked about my friend, Bessie, my mentor, who taught me basically everything I know. She was a great gardener. She was a great gardener. And we used to talk in gardening analogies all the time. I'm a terrible gardener, but that's another story. I learned a lot from her. I always think about trellises. I think about, you know, you plant the seed and you nurture the seed and, you know, but it needs things to climb on, right? And it needs to climb upwards. But You know, when you're, there's attachments that train it up that trellis, right? And I think that's all about how you integrate those important elements and also 
make a direction for the thing to grow. I mean, that to me is what the trellis is like, right? It's that gives you the structure for it to grow up. And I think gardening is a great analogy for pretty much everything. It really is. It really is. At least my nephew, Mark, has become an amazing individual to watch him grow. I'll share with you. He came to live with me just out of high school. He lived with myself and my husband. This is before we had children. And we've always been really, really close. And over the course, he's now, I think, what, 31. He has become of his own right. And even in, in his apartment, he has taken on this amazing habit meditation practice. I don't know what you call it, of growing plants. And it's so wonderful. And he takes it so seriously, but it's such a beautiful thing. I think anyone that deals seriously with or uses the practice of nurturing plants or flowers, to me, it really is a beautiful thing. But I want to shift our conversation. I was just sharing that story when we talk about planting of my nephew, Mark, who I love so dearly and just seeing him grow from a teenager. Now he's in his thirties and he himself, he's picked up this practice of nurturing plants and growing. I wanted to, I'll steer the conversation as we wrap up. And I want to loop back to your business, what you're now doing in Elise Fleur and share that in July 31, 2021. So last year, New Yorker magazine featured you or talked about your business, I should say, in the reference of the actress, English actress, Emily Mortimer. And it really brings home what you're doing, both in using flowers to bring together individuals. And really, it's a language of to itself, this arranging that you're doing. And it really can give us the words, give us the language. And so I want to, I want you to talk about that article and talk about that experience. But I want our listeners to know is that what Elise is doing and how I've interpreted it, you can correct and add to this, Elise. What I see it as if you are in a leadership role, if you're in a position of authority or even not, maybe you're an employee of itself, you're finding that there may be a misunderstanding, not being heard, not being seen. Maybe there's even gotten to the level that the culture within the workplace is becoming toxic and there needs to be words, there needs to be a bridge that what Elise is doing with flowers is a way to do it. And you're going to end Elise talking about how you work inside of workplaces. And one more thing, I want you to also expand on the experience that you had with the recently released or formerly incarcerated women in the Bronx, because as my listeners know, I work with individuals. I represent individuals that are have been survivors of sexual violence. I've worked with professional athletes in the context of the court and litigation, which in and of itself can be re-traumatizing for individuals. That's why I'm excited to bring to the audience, bring to whether you're the survivor of abuse, sexual abuse, whether you were incarcerated, uh, locked away in a prison, whether you are in a workplace that's toxic, what Elise does may be an answer to bridge that gulf and to cure what's going on. So to distill out the questions that I'm putting before you, tell us about how you use flowers in that New Yorker article, that experience. And then will you end our episode by telling how flowers can be a language to in a workplace or it for survivors of trauma? So those two issues. Okay. Let's start with Emily Mortimer. Please. <laughs> you know, sometimes the Google universe is your friend. Some she was releasing this new film, The Pursuit of Love, and flowers were a big part of the writing and the set and all of that stuff. And so the, the people at Amazon Prime, you know, working on getting articles and they had a New Yorker writer, Michael Shulman was going to interview Emily and they wanted a situation where they could talk. And they said, how about a flower design class? So what was I going to say? Sure. <laughs> I, 
actually, I didn't know who Emily Mortimer was at the time. I did know about Michael Shulman, The New Yorker, and I was like, oh, my God, The New Yorker. That made me nervous. So they came over, and I did what I usually do, and that entails finding out what people's connection to flowers are, because everyone has one. And it could be they were at your grandmother's funeral. It could be that your grandfather is a master gardener. Everybody has some connection to flowers, and it's pretty primal. So I find that in Emily's case, she was talking all about her father and introducing someone to dahlias. And and she and I now have a joke. Whenever I see really beautiful dahlias, I send her a picture of them because this woman said that the dahlias were vulgar. Anyway, it became a great story as part of the article. What was especially wonderful was that the writer was really, really tuned in. I mean, he participated in the class. And, you know, I, I start talking about the fact that in every culture, there's a different way of seeing flowers. I love the Japanese perspective, which is very spare. Some people don't like that. I said, but you can learn things from every tradition and you can incorporate them into your design. And I don't give you a lot of rules. I make a few suggestions. Here's some proportions to think about. But you choose who's the star of your show. Like you say, this is the color that I like. And then I give you suggestions for how to support the star. Who is the supporting characters? Like I always say, it's like making choreography in a small container or uh, making a drama because, you know, to me, the flowers really become characters. And in making anything whether you're knitting a sweater or you're making a play, it's always about considering the materials you're working with. And in doing that, you come out of yourself. You know, you get into a flow because you're paying attention to the shape of the stem or the color of the, you know, you're, you're not in your own head. And that's what a good creative process is about. I was very pleased because he basically quoted me exactly in one of my favorite quotes, which I told my boys that should go on my graveside is perfection is overrated. Yeah, I saw that in there. And I I was like, oh, yeah, I really do believe that. We've we've all grown up on, like, I have to do it better. It has to be exact. I said, you know, flowers are living things. They're not perfect. And let's just know that not only are you going to make a design with your flowers, you're going to take it apart when you water them and change the water to make sure that they live longer. So you're constantly in a repurposing, you know, and reimagining. And it's a very small, obviously, it's very small. But, you know, if you think about, you know, you make something and then you remake it and then you rethink it and then you look at it from the other side in a funny way. It's a taste of how to consider all kinds of things. This is, flowers just happen to be the medium. So when I go into uh, somebody's office or they come to my studio we get to know each other. I always do a little bit of breathing and centering because you said something about trauma, which I think from my many years of studying yoga, trauma lives in the body. And God knows we're not going to release a lot of trauma in a three-minute sort of release and breathe session, but we can at least reset. We can kind of reset our nervous system. We can take our eyes off the screen. Uh, we can kind of get back into our bodies in the present. And and then, you know, I talk about some of the principles and some examples of ways to do things. And then we just get out our materials and we go. And I always come back to my friend Bessie and the idea of observing what other people do and giving them constructive feedback of, well, this is what I see. So I am always going around and saying, oh, let's take a minute. Let's look at so-and-so. Look at where they are. What do you see? What line, shape, so forth. And it's not really about like, are you going to help them make the quote unquote perfect arrangement a because there is no perfect arrangement and b because it's going to change but you're taking a minute to think about how you're going to give your colleague feedback like i said the flowers are just a medium for all of these things at the end everybody looks at everybody's beautiful creation no two are if i've done my job no two are the same people i remember one of my favorite moments when somebody said oh my god i never knew sam had such an incredible eye. 
You know, you know, like people discover things about their colleagues that they didn't know, which to me is that's like the golden moment. And then they take their flowers home and hopefully they can start, like you said, you know, you pick up a few flowers at the line in the supermarket and then you do it for yourself. How did this happen? So really, as you've been talking, flowers are really the epitome of diversity. Mm-hmm. They are a to remind us also at our very basic, sometimes we forget it. We're all just animals. We're human animals. I know we like to dress ourselves up and try to distinguish ourselves from, you know, our animals and basic function, but it doesn't surprise me that working with flowers, holding flowers, it reminds us of our essence that no matter who you're looking at across that coworker, whoever you're looking at, you don't understand Maybe they're so, they've come from such a different background. They look so different from you in hairstyle and in facial features. But if you're there doing some arrangement together, you, it would seem to me at least that that flower itself is pulling you back into nature and saying, we're all very much alike. Is that what you see? Is that what you saw? Well, you know, I love that you say this so beautifully for two reasons. Well, there's probably more than two reasons, but one is, and I quote my Ikebana teacher, you know, your job in designing flowers is to bring nature into a container. And I think to go back to trauma, um, nature is incredibly healing and focusing on nature, however people do it, whether, you know, whether they're hiking in the mountains or just or paying attention to their flowers, it's really it's really healing. And it does bring us all back to that kind of basic understanding of we kind of all come from the same place. And flowers are something we have in common. (laughs) I always say there are no ugly flowers, you know. But yeah, I think that's a lot like people, you know, when you really get to look at it and get to know it and get to get your hands on it and and see. (laughs) We say flowers are like dancers, only quieter. You know, no two spines are the same. No two flowers are the same. And you have to really kind of pay attention to notice that, oh, even roses aren't exactly carbon copies. And so that sense of individuality is, it's under the hood of all that. You know, it's its present. And if you get absorbed enough in doing this, you realize it. And there's something really, I don't know, comforting about it. It's a meditation. It's a practice. Absolutely. Tell us as we end this really dynamic conversation about nonprofits, your experience in in the nonprofit world, your experience, how you're using flowers as a medium to, I don't know if you know it, or maybe you don't even advertise it, but this is my take on it, that you're using flowers as a medium in this current iteration of your career to advance diversity within traditional structures. You're reimagining it and you're reminding us how we can really be more inclusive. Tell everyone if out there that's listening, if they want to use flowers, if they want to work with you to restart the conversation, rethink whether they're a nonprofit leader, whether they're in a another type of setting, how can they reach you and how can they what type of services do you offer to teams and workplaces, employers, employees? So the first answer is it's always best to email me at Fleur Elise, F L E U R E L I S E, at Fleur Elise, B K L N. I'll tell the story of Brooklyn, Maine, and Brooklyn, New York some other time. So Fleur Elise at Fleur Elise, B K L N dot com. I'm always happy to get back to people and call them. People can learn more about all the things I do, and uh, in particular, the team building workshops at www.fleurelisebkln.com slash workshops. And I do online and in person. I had to figure out how to do online. And I've found with a bunch of different companies that it's been very successful. It's always, how do you say, it's always more fun to do it in person. But I would say we would, we would all say that's true about everything. But online is really does work. And the advantage of it is, of course, for people who have teams that are remote and all over, it's very easy to gather them this way. And 
I keep the structure pretty much the same, including like we do the breathing, we do the talking, we get to know each other, and we get to look at what each other's works are doing, how they're evolving, and how people are putting them together. And I think, yes, I have to say I've been very pleased at the diversity of my participants. And just that sense of people discovering each other's gifts. I can't think of a better way to end this for a listener out there that is struggling, whether you're an executive director, whether you're in the nonprofit world, and like I was saying, a more traditional, use, contact Elise, think about this medium. This is the way, this is the goal of this podcast and this episode is to get us to rethink these structures, these processes that are continuing to divide us that aren't working. So it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you for sharing your story and sharing how you're using flowers, Elise. Thank you so much. All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.